Well, good evening. Like Rob said, my name is Taylor, and I'm one of the fellows up here at Grace, and I am incredibly excited to get to uh, talk to y'all tonight. Um, One, because I've been wanting to talk all semester, but two, um, it's because I'm getting to preach on one of my favorite favorite stories in the entire Bible. Uh, It's uh, John chapter 21, and it talks about the restoration of Peter, and it's been a story that when I first heard it years ago, man, it deeply impacted my life, and uh, as I went through college, it was it was always a story that I continued to listen to, listen to um, over and over on the podcast. And so tonight, I'm, I'm really excited just to get to share with you um, the John chapter 21. And so I'm going to go ahead and open this up in prayer, and then we'll um, jump on into it. Father God, I thank you so much for uh, this Thanksgiving weekend that we just came out of. I'm in a time where we can think about uh, the things that we're thankful for, uh, the things that we understand are a gift from you. God, we thank you for that, and I pray that as we go into the rest of the semester and as we go into um, the Christmas break, Lord, that we would continue to have that spirit of thankfulness, um, Lord, that we would continue to think about the things that you've given us and the relationship that you've called us into, and God, we thank you for that. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage and and the way that it can talk to all of us. Um, Lord, I pray that you use me tonight um, to speak your word clearly, and I also pray that this message... um, affects people the way that I know it affected me um, in college. And so, Lord, we thank you. I thank you. Um, I pray all this in your son Christ's name. Amen. Well, awesome. So, if you're a Disney fan, uh, then this will be a very easy thing to follow along with. But if you're not, then one, shame on you. Um, and two, listen up. Beware, there are a bunch of spoiler alerts. I'm about to just tell you the plot of The Lion King. Um, so, when I was a kid growing up, The Lion King was honestly one of my favorite movies, and if you're anything like me, it was probably a huge part of your childhood as well. Man, it is, besides Hercules, it was the one Disney movie that I just loved watching over and over again, and uh, I would remember sitting down and singing along to it, and, I, and it starts off with uh, Mufasa sitting there with his son, and he's telling him about the king that he's going to be one day, and he's looking over the pride land, and he's saying, man, one day you're going to be king over all this. You're going to be responsible for everything that's here these people, these, these animals are going to look up to you, uh, and you're going to have a position of greatness. You're going to be king over these people. Uh, and the movie keeps going on, and, and Simba's excited, and I'm excited singing along with him how he can't wait to be king, and uh, it's just getting, it, it's awesome. And then what happens is Mufasa starts giving Simba um, some guidelines. He said, hey, when you're king one day, these are the things that you, that you should and shouldn't do. And he tells him as a, as a kid, like, hey, these are places that you should and shouldn't go, right? Don't go to that place. Stay in this place. And he's starting to give him guidelines to set him up for, set him up for success um, about the life as a king and a life of greatness that he's going to have one day. Um, and what happens is Simba goes on. Um, little by little, he starts diving into some of those disobedient ways. And it starts off small, and Mufasa is able to come in there and save him, about a, save him from a couple of those situations. But uh, what ends up happening is through Simba's disobedience, uh, it sets in motion what is the eventual death of his father. And although he wasn't, although he wasn't completely responsible for it, you know, uh, Scar, threw, Scar threw Mufasa off, man, Simba, Simba's disobedience leads to the eventual death of, death of his father. And in that moment where Simba's sitting there with his dad, he thinks that he's caused his dad to die, and he's overcome with shame, and he's overcome with the guilt uh, of the death of his father. And so what does he do? He 
runs off into the jungle and he leaves all of his responsibilities behind because he's overcome with this guilt and this shame that he's incurred um, for, what he, for what he thinks is causing the death of his dad. Uh, and he goes off into the jungle and he builds up this life um, of safety and security walled off from the shame and guilt of that life. And yeah, he makes some friends, uh, Hakuna Matata and all that fun stuff, right? But really what he's doing is he, he's backing away from the call that's on his life as king to kind of be safe and secure, right? And so the, this, line that was, this line that was destined for greatness has become completely ineffective for what he was made for because, of, because he let shame and guilt uh, come over him. And so this semester we've been walking through two different sermon series. We looked at judges at the beginning um, and what a life of relativism looks like, what it looks like for people to um, put God beside and say, hey, we're going to do our own thing. And we saw how dark sin is and we saw the, uh, the consequences, the real consequences it has on our life. Um, and then we moved through the study of soteriology, when Jacob did a great, great job of laying out our salvation for us. Um, and he, he walked through the atonement and justification and sanctification and glorification. And as we went through that sermon series, we learned, um, man, of this wonderful gift that God's given us uh, of salvation. Uh, and, we, and we came to know, uh, you know, a simple statement for all of it is that we, come, we came to know and have a better appreciation for um, that we are justified by grace through faith, right? We know that, but I think we know that a lot in the same way that maybe Simba knew that he was supposed to be king. And you can know these things sometimes, but does it always affect the way that you live and the way that you act and the way that you deal with life as it comes along? But tonight, I want to kind of move on a little bit deeper from that and go in. And I want to talk about an issue that I'm confident that every single one of us in here, including myself, has uh, is either dealing with right now or has dealt with at some point in this semester. Um, and so w- what that is, is at, at some point in this semester, probably the beginning of the semester, you kind of set up some goals for yourself, some spiritual goals for yourself. Um, and maybe it was super specific. Maybe you wrote down in your journal, this is how I want to grow. These are the things that I want to do. Um, and y- you have it laid out right now in your journal. And maybe you've looked back at it, or maybe it was just God, I don't know how I want to grow, but I just, I want to be closer to you. I want to be more like you. I want to tell people about you. Or maybe you were in one of our Bible studies and um, you were given the challenge of engaging with people. Um, you were given the challenge of uh, evangelizing and telling your fellow classmates and some of your fellow Aggies about the gospel. You're given that challenge. Um, but maybe along the way, um, man, maybe your priority with walking with Christ wasn't that big of a thing anymore. Um, or uh, maybe just coming to church on Sunday or Bible study on Thursday nights and hearing from Jacob or your Bible study leader, that became the way that you studied the Bible just through other people. Or you became so, um, so involved with, with school and work and friends and all these different things that these goals that you set for yourself at the beginning of the semester slowly, one by one by one, kind of fell off. Um, and, and maybe that's where you are. Or maybe you, man, maybe you just got so deep into some sort of sin this semester that it kind of derailed you um, and it, you just started uh, turning inside kind of like Simba and you, you, you kind of just walled off from the world and you kind of became this uh, zombie Christian almost, you know, uh, where you just walked in and out of your day and uh, um, you just weren't effective. Um, and so I don't know where you are on that spectrum and it doesn't have to be some kind of glaring sin. Maybe it was just, uh, maybe the whispers in your head of like, you're, you're not good enough or you're not doing as enough. Um, But wherever you are on that spectrum, um, the question that I want to address tonight is, what does God think of you when you feel completely 
uh, ineffective for the kingdom? What does God think of you when you feel completely ineffective uh, for his kingdom? And what does he do with you when you're sitting in that moment where you're, man, you, you just don't feel like you're doing anything for him? Um, and we're going to answer that story with, uh, man, the story of Peter. And Peter's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He's, uh, he, he's a great guy. He, he's one of those people that's all head and no heart. You might have a friend like that, too. They just jump into a situation, and, man, they don't think at all about what they're doing. They just go for it, and you're sitting over there like, I don't know this person, you know. You, you, you don't know them. They're, they're all head. They're no, or, yeah, they're all heart, no head. And, and that's kind of like Peter. Peter's uh, that kind of, he, he's that guy that um, in Matthew, when Jesus calls him out on the water, he, he just jumps out all happy like this, right? This is, a, this is an accurate picture of Peter walking out onto the sea, all happy, right? But the second he realizes that he's walking on water, what happens? He is kind of screaming and he's, he's sinking. He, um, and he doesn't think about the things that he does. Unfortunately, I don't have pictures for the rest of these. Uh, I was looking at some, but they're just weird. But w- when Jesus says to his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter's the guy that stands up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, right? He, he proclaims that instantly. Uh, but then a couple of verses later, he turns around uh, and he's rebuking Christ because Christ says that he's going to go to the cross and die. And he's like, no, you're not going to go to the cross. and You're not going to die, right? So he's that guy that tells God to the face that he's not going to do something. Or, um, man, he's also the guy that when Jesus invites his disciples to um, pray for him in his last hours, he falls asleep while Jesus is praying. Uh, And then he wakes up to Jesus being arrested. And what does he do? Uh, He pulls out a knife uh, and he tries to fight a Roman convoy um, to, to guard Jesus, right? And it says, it says he pulled out a sword, but it, it translates better to a fishing knife. So he's standing there with a fishing knife uh, trying to defend him against an armed Roman convoy. Just, he's not an organized dude in, in the slightest. Um, uh, but then there's also that moment when Jesus is sitting with his disciples around the table and he says that you're going be- to betray me, you're going to deny me. And Peter stands up and he says, no, I would never do that. I would never deny you. I would never, I would never forsake you. Um, but then we see later as, um, man, Jesus is being hauled off, uh, that Peter denies him. And it says on the third time, in, in Luke, it says on the third time when he denied Christ, that Christ looked up at him and made eye contact with him. And it says that uh, he, he ran off and that he wept. Uh, and so where we're at tonight in John 21, Peter's in that place of total guilt, uh, of total shame. And he's, he's, in, a, he's in a dark place. Um, really. And so uh, keep that in mind. We're going to go ahead and uh, read. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 21. We're going to read through, starting in verse 1, going to read a a big old chunk, so bear with me here. If you don't have your Bible, just listen to it um, as I read it. So starting in verse 1, it says, after this, and that this being the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to, them, said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it now and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. 
And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with the fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? And they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised. So we're going to go ahead and stop there for right now. So, um, so what's happened? At this point, Peter was one of the first people to go to the tomb and see that Jesus, had, that Jesus wasn't there anymore. And he hasn't necessarily seen Jesus at this point, but he knows that Jesus isn't in the, to- isn't in the tomb anymore. Um, but instead of like rejoicing and being excited, what does he say here? He says, I'm going fishing. And there's something significant about Peter going fishing. Some people might think or say that Peter's going to maybe make, make a little bit of cash or maybe just go fish for sport, but um, there's something significant about Peter going fishing. Um, and it's the fact that Peter was a former career fisherman. Career fisherman. Um, and, and it makes some significance here. Uh, a couple years ago, six, seven years ago, um, Ben Stewart uh, did a sermon on John chapter 21, and he, and he gave the amazing analogy uh, of Michael Jordan to this. And so if you don't know Michael Jordan's story, uh, Michael Jordan is the face of the NBA in the early 90s, right? He, uh, everybody knows him. He's on all the commercials. He's, he's everywhere. Michael Jordan is the NBA at this point. But in the early 90s, he leaves basketball, uh, and he goes and takes a little hiatus playing minor league baseball, okay? Um, and, and he leaves the NBA. And what he does is two, three, about two years later, uh, he gets the media back together and he makes a, a statement um, on, on the TV and he says, I'm going back to playing basketball. I'm going back to playing basketball. And it's significant because he's making a career move in this moment. He's not saying, I'm going to play basketball with some of my buddies in the backyard or I'm going to the park to play uh, some pickup basketball. He's saying, I'm, I'm going back to basketball. And man, that's kind of the same thing that we're seeing here with Peter. Peter, who was called by Jesus to, he said, you will no longer be a fisherman, but you'll be a fisher of men. He says, follow me. And Peter's been doing this for the past three years. Peter's saying, I'm going back fishing. I'm going fishing. Um, and in this moment of, of shame and feeling useless for the, for the kingdom, using useless for the call that God has on his life, He's wallowing back into uh, his former life, into this safe and secure place that he, fi- that he fills. And, and what's kind of sad about it is that it says later in verse 3 that the other disciples said, we're going with you. Uh, so Peter's a leader, and he's bringing people uh, back with him. People are following him into this sin. Um, and so next is, uh, we have Jesus coming onto the scene, and they don't know that it's Jesus at this time. Uh, but it's funny, he calls them and he says, uh, children... Have you caught any fish? And it's funny because children can actually be translated as little boys. So he's kind of poking, making fun of them over here. He's saying, little boys, have you not caught any fish? And I love the way that it's at least translated in the ESV. It literally just says, no, period. Uh, like, no, just no, we haven't caught any fish. Um, he's, he's constantly messing with people. But what he does is he tells them to throw the net on the other side of the boat um, to catch some fish. Uh, and they do it, and they catch, catch this massive quantity of fish. And uh, this story might seem a little similar to you, uh, and that's because this is actually the second time that we're seeing 
this miracle take place. Um, the first time we saw it, and it's laid out really well in Luke chapter 5, um, is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry when he meets Peter for the first time. And he, he goes to the shore and he tells Peter to cast his uh, net on the other side of the boat and he hauls in this giant load of fish. Um, and at that moment, what does Peter do? He comes to the shore and he says to Jesus, uh, he says, depart from me for I'm sinful. And he surrenders his life right then and there uh, to Jesus. And, and that's the moment of Peter's faith, right? And so when we're in, here in uh, chapter 21, what's happening? Why is Jesus, re- what's he doing? Um, doing the same miracle over again. And what he's doing is he's recreating Peter's moment of first faith, um, which I think is just so cool. And I, I, this is one of those things that you just don't see sometimes when you're just reading through your Bible. But Jesus is recreating the moment of Peter's first faith um, by, by doing the same miracle. He wants to remind him, um, man, I, I stepped into a relationship with you. Right? So one of the first things that, that we see, um, the, the, the first way we're going to answer this question is, what does God think of you when you feel completely useless for the kingdom of God? Um, is that God still thinks of you as his. And I think that's super important. And it says, I put, he wants you to know that he still wants a relationship with you. And then he gently reminds you that he's the one that first reached out to you in grace. Man, he, he doesn't show up to the shorelines uh, on that beach and say, what are you doing? We're, there's no more fishing. We're not fishing anymore, Peter. What are you doing? That's not how he approaches Peter. He gets up there and he recreates this miracle, showing him, hey, I, I stepped into a relationship with you, Peter, and I still want you. And I think that John realizes this too, because it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And he points to Peter and he tells him that the Lord is calling you. This miracle is your miracle. And I love what Peter does. He's being Peter again. Uh, He just throws himself off the boat and just try to swim back to shore. Um, And it's funny, it says that he threw on his outer garment. So usually when people jump into the water, they kind of take off some clothes. But no, he kind of throws on his jacket and then he jumps into the water and then he starts swimming to shore while the other disciples are over there just kind of paddling to the shoreline because it clearly says they're 100 yards off. So they're over there carrying in the whole catch while, um, while Peter's frantically swimming in the water. But I think it's great because we see the effect of God's grace on someone's life um, when, when, they, when they come out of that moment of shame and out of that moment of guilt. Um, but that's not where the story stops. And, and I think the first point is that uh, he wants us to know that he still wants a relationship with us, that he comes to us in grace. Um, I think the next thing that he does is he, uh, he educates us. He sits us down and he educates us. Uh, and that's kind of where the passage goes next. Um, and it, I, I don't know if you noticed in it, but it says when they got out on the land that Jesus already had this charcoal fire laid out for them. Um, and uh, man, this is another one of those things that I, I would have never, never, ever caught just reading through Bible normally. But uh, when you look at it, th- that term charcoal fire is used twice in the entire Bible. Uh, it's used here, um, and it's also used in John chapter, tw- uh, John chapter 18. Um, when Peter denies Christ. Uh, And it says that Peter went up and that he was warming his hands over a charcoal fire. Uh, In that moment, that's when he denies Jesus. And that's when he looks at Jesus in the eyes um, uh, and and feels all that guilt. And so what Jesus has done here is he's not only created that first moment of faith, he's not only recreated that, but now he's recreated Peter's greatest moment of failure. Um, And uh, man, that's 
that's astonishing to me. And I, I don't know if Peter necessarily realized that in the moment. I don't know if he walked up on the shore and was like, oh, a charcoal fire, you did that, Jesus. I don't know if that's the way that he reacted to that. Um, but we kind of know that that's where it was going if we read a little bit further on. And so we're going to pick it back up in verse 15 uh, and read through 19. If you want to read along, it says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second, second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Then tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had heard this a third time. Because he heard it a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you, not, where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying these things, he said to him, follow me. So why does Jesus ask him this question three times in a row? He asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter keeps answering the same thing over and over again. Why is he asking this over and over and over again? Is it to be rude or to poke at him or to get him to break down? I don't think it is. Um, I don't think it is. I think what he's trying to do in this moment is he's trying to um, save Peter from a, a life of total guilt and of total shame. Because um, I think that every time Peter was around his friends, every time he was around his disciples, he was reminded of how he betrayed his, his God. Uh, or every time he stood around a charcoal fire, he would remember um, that, man, that's... That's when I denied Christ and looked him in the eyes. Or every time he woke up in the morning uh, and heard the, the rooster crow, every single morning for the rest of his life, he would wake up and hear the rooster crow and be reminded of the worst moment in his life, honestly. And so what I think is, I don't think Jesus is being rude here. I don't think he's being mean or picking. I think what he's doing is he's trying to save his life by, by, by helping him to realize uh, where Jesus has called him. Jesus is bringing Peter back into this moment on this beach in a safe environment um, to restore him. He's trying to restore him. And what's interesting is he says, uh, he says it over and over again. He says, feed my lambs or tend to my sheep. And then he says again, feed my sheep. And what is he doing? Uh, Every single one of those is pointing towards the future. Okay. Every single one of those, feed my sheep. That's something that you're going to do in the future. Tend my sheep. He's, He's saying, Peter, I still want to use you. I still want to use you. He doesn't look back and say, um, do you love me? Because it sure the heck didn't look like it last week. That's not, that's not what he says, right? He says, do you love me? Well, then let's move forward. Feed my sheep. Man, Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying over and over again, he's saying, let's go, follow me. He's saying, don't wallow in this shame. Don't wallow in this guilt. Don't wallow in uh, maybe your own disappointment in yourself um, for, for what's going on. And I think it's, you know, kind of relating it back to, the Lion King, I think it's a lot of the same way that when you see Nala come onto the scene in The Lion King, and, you know, she's saying, hey, there's people back there that need you. There's, they need you back there. You left your responsibility to care for these people, and you're over here. She's, forget the past. The past is in the past. Let's move forward. And that's the same thing that Jesus is doing. And I think so many people let shame and guilt 
and disappointment in their own life just completely wreck the, the ministry that they, they have going on. And I know in my life, there's been times where I, I've just gotten to a point where I've just, I'm so disappointed in myself, so disappointed in not, um, in not following through on either commitments that I made or promises that I made to myself that I just completely altogether just push aside doing any kind of ministry. Um, but what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, go feed my sheep. He's saying there's people out there that need you. And, and, and this is what is hilarious to me. I don't know if you've, um, I don't know if you've ever studied sheep before. I, I definitely have not. But when I was, when I was kind of like looking at this and kind of the, some of the sermons that I've heard about pastors preaching out sheep, you, you ought to look into them. They are just incredibly stupid animals. They're so stupid, and, and I think it's funny that Jesus uses sheep all throughout all throughout the Bible to relate them to humans because uh, sheep are just incredibly dumb. Um, uh, they're just these big, stupid animals. Uh, they have absolutely zero defense mechanisms, for one thing. Just zero defense mechanisms. They, they can't care for themselves at all. There's nothing that they have to protect them from the outside world. Uh, I've seen, you, you can watch videos of sheep just like kind of falling over, and that's kind of their defense mechanism sometimes. They have absolutely no defense mechanisms. And there's actually been cases of sheep dying of dehydration while standing in water or near a pond. They're, they're just so dumb. Like, if they don't have somebody to guide them, if they don't have somebody to help them out, they die. And I think that's funny. Jesus is saying, Peter, look at the world. There's, there's sheep out you. They're looking for all the answers in the worst possible place. And those are the people that I'm calling you to. And if you don't believe me that people are, are like sheep, um, oh, I, I forgot to go through this, but... Just watch, watch this video real quick and, and you will agree with me. The worst Black Friday disasters. Woman pepper sprays crowd to get Xbox games. In 2011, in a Porter Ranch, California Walmart, a woman deliberately pepper sprayed people surrounding an Xbox game display. 20 people were struck in the face and needed medical attention on the scene. Brand Smart Stampede on Senior Citizen. In 2005, hundreds of people pummeled through doors in complete mob mentality zone, without any care or remorse for those being trampled around them. That's what happened to a 73-year-old who was stampeded on again and again, and her daughter couldn't do anything to help. Crazy Walmart Black Friday fight for TV. Police had to be called in on the scene to break up a fight over a discounted flat-screen television at an unidentified Walmart. The sight is unbelievable as a woman still tries to hold the box TV all the while being thrown to the floor and restrained by two cops. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we can't watch the rest of that video because it goes on for about another 10 minutes and it gets worse and worse and worse as it goes along. Uh, till I, I legitimately, there's a guy that dies at the end. He has a heart attack from shopping, I guess. I'm not really sure what happened, but that's insane. People are insane, and that in a way makes me embarrassed sometimes to be a person, to, <laughs> to think about the fact that um, man, me and my brother were watching some videos that there was, li- there's literally people like getting into f- like huge fights, like fist to fist, like bloody noses over vegetable dehydrators. It's insane to me, uh, but that's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, hey, there are sheep out there that need you. There's people out there that look for answers in the worst possible place. They have no idea 
They have no idea what the hope looks for. They have no idea um, what, what life should be about. And that's what he's calling um, people into. Um, and, and so, kind of start to, to land this plane here. I mean, what do what I want y'all to understand from this story? What do I want y'all, hopefully for y'all to um, learn the way that I learned from this passage is, um, man, I hope that you wouldn't let some sort of guilt or shame or disappointment um, and a goal that you've set for yourself deter you from what God's called you into. And like I was saying before, whether that's like a big glaring sin that's in the face of everybody, or whether that's something that you just internally, like you set a goal for yourself and you didn't accomplish it, and then you're sitting there and you're like, man, maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I can't do these things. Don't let those things deter you. I mean, it says that Jesus Christ died to set you free from those things. And I think out of anything, being derailed by shame or guilt or disappointment in your own life, that's the last thing um, that God would want. He he steps in um, and he reminds you, hey, I, I want a relationship with you. Um, I was the first one to step into a relationship with you, and I can do that again. And then he educates us. He says, hey, your sin's bad. Yes, we need to deal with this. But there's people out there that need you. Let's get back on track and let, let, let's do this. And so uh, I'm going to kind of end with this illustration that I, I think is, um, is pretty cool. In the book of Joshua, there's this guy named Achan. Um, and, he do, and he commits what is considered Israel's worst sin. Uh, it's the absolute worst sin of Israel. Um, and uh, because of it, it incurs a ton of punishment on the nation of Israel, but it also leads to his actual death. Uh, and what Joshua does is he calls that valley where, where Achan does this, he calls it the Valley of Achor, which translates to the Valley of Terribleness or the Valley of Trouble. And he kind of pushes it off and he says, like, there's nothing good that comes from that valley. There's nothing good that, that came from there. That is the worst heinous crime that is, that is on the name of Israel now, the sin of Achan, that, of what he did. Um, but what's really cool is later on in your Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, the prophet says, he makes this remark. He says, would the valley of Achor be a door of hope? Uh, he, he says, would it be a door of hope? He says, that place that is literally called the valley of trouble, the valley of terribleness, would that be a door of hope? And man, I, I think that God uses um, sometimes the, he uses the most seemingly useless, um, the most sinful people sometimes to um, do some of the biggest things. Uh, and so, Man, as y'all move through the rest of the semester, as you go home for Christmas over the break, uh, I want you to think about this. Think about those things. Um, what in your life has derailed you from, man, what you, what you started off with uh, wanting to accomplish at the beginning of the semester? Um, and, and understand that Christ is still reaching out to you, that he still wants that relationship with you, and that he has work for you to do. Uh, and so I'm going to go ahead and pray, and, uh, and I think we got another song that Rob's going to lead us in. Father, I thank you for the story of um, the restoration of Peter um, and how it's, man, it's, it's, uh, it's super um, relevant to our lives. Uh, it's so easy for us to get disappointed in ourselves, to us to miss goals, expectations, um, for us to wallow in, in shame and guilt. And, and I thank you that you're a God that reaches out to us first um, and says that you love us. And then at the same time, uh, you value us enough to make us a part of um, your kingdom and that you want us to move out to reach out to other people. And so, uh, Lord, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for this passage. And I pray all this in your son Christ's name.